Please turn with me in your Bible to the book of Acts, chapter 21. The book of Acts, chapter 21. Today we're going to look at a passage where Paul, the representative of the Gentile churches of the world, and James, one of the leaders of the Jewish church in Jerusalem, they meet. And uh, sometimes people caricature James and Paul as if they are not on the same page. Uh, this has been an infamous discussion for a long time, and I, I would like to argue this passage will show us that the differences, these at least apparent differences between James and Paul were superficial. They're, they're doctrinally at the core of who they were. They, they were in lockstep agreement. They happened to be in different contexts, and that oftentimes showed some differences in the way that they would do things. As we're about to jump in, I'm going to read a long part of this passage to get us kind of oriented to where we are, relatively long. And before I do that, I want to give you an incentive uh, to, to, to follow along today. And the incentive is this. As we study carefully passages like this, this passage at first glance will not seem, maybe, to be very applicable to our lives. We're not dealing with this controversy, most of us are not dealing with the controversy of how Jewish Christians should act around Gentile Christians and how Gentile Christians should act around, you know, that whole, that's not something we're mainly dealing with. And so you may be tempted to go, okay, I'm going to think about something else during this sermon. But I, I want to give you a, a, an argument here, a reason to stay with me, because I believe not only is all Scripture God-breathed and useful, profitable, which is true of everything in the Bible, I also believe that in this text, this is one of those texts where we have to choose. I'm going to leave my world right now. 2021, I'm leaving this world. I'm going to the year 57 AD, okay? It is, it is around the month of May, 57 AD. Don't you feel it right now? Don't you? Have you just been transported? You're there? It's 57 AD. We're going to the city of Jerusalem. We're walking with Paul. And if we can get really get out of our life, get out of our world, go into this other world, and if we can work really hard to understand what's happening here, and we can connect these dots we can actually then make application back to 2021. But until we step out of 2021 and go back to 57 spring, we, we can't figure out what the Bible is really saying, and then we can't rightly apply it. And, and one of the things that plagues us, and I, I don't necessarily mean our church, I just mean in general, Christians, one of, our, one of the things that plagues us is the desire to jump from text to my life without understanding the text. And you do lots of harm to lots of people when you, you read an obscure passage, and then what, is, what, what, what do they say at the Bible study? Uh, Frank, what does that mean to you? Ryan, what does that mean to you? Sarah, what does that mean to you? And then someone just kind of says what they feel the text sort of means to their life this week. But what's the problem? We jumped over the 57 AD setting. We don't understand the controversy or how it's settled, so we can't accurately apply the text to today until we understand the text in its context, both its biblical and its historical context. So, we're going to spend some time leaving now and going back then, and I've titled the sermon, it's a bit of a long title here, but Paul and James face a challenging situation in Jerusalem. Okay, that's the title of the message, Paul and James face a challenging situation in Jerusalem. And I'm going to give you a little bit of an introduction here, but I'll go ahead and give you the points. If you, want to, you don't have to jot these down. If you want to jot these down, you can jot these down quickly. Uh, five points, okay? So, Paul and James agree about, and I'm going to give you five things. Paul and James agree about, number one, the gospel. Number two, the Gentiles. 
Number three, the Jews. Number four, Paul's enemies. They agree about Paul's enemies. Number five, they also agree about what Paul should do. I'll say that one more time. Paul and James agree about, number one, the gospel. Number two, the Gentiles. Number three, the Jews. Number four, Paul's enemies. And number five, what Paul should do. Let me read our passage, and we'll work back through this in, in pieces as we, as we go. If you remember, Paul has been warned not to go to Jerusalem because when he gets there, he's going to experience extreme persecution. And Paul decides to go anyway. We'll start in verse 14. We'll read down to verse 26. This again is God's Word. Acts 21, verse 14. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, let the will of the Lord be done. After these days, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem. And some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us, bringing us to the house of one Nason of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we should lodge. When we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. After greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through His ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified God. And they said to him, You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. They are all zealous for the law. And they have been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. What then is to be done? They will, indeed, they will certainly hear that you have come. Do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. Thus, all will know that there is nothing in what they have been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance of the law. But as for the Gentiles who have believed, we have sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols, and from blood, and from what has been strangled, and from sexual immorality." Then Paul took them in, and the next day he purified himself along with them and went into the temple, giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled and the offering presented for each one of them. All right, that is the end of our text for today. And let me just try, as limited as I'm able here, to, to paint a picture of May 57 AD in Jerusalem. Okay, that's, I'm going I'm to try this. So, Jesus was crucified and resurrected in either 30 or 33 A.D. There's a debate. I'll just go with 30. Just, just keep it simple here. Let's say 30 is around the time of Pentecost and the crucifixion, resurrection, and the birth, really, of the church as we know it, 30 A.D. Uh, the city of Jerusalem is going to be destroyed by the Romans in the year… Yeah, the, the Jewish war begins in 66 A.D. It lasts for about four years, and it's destroyed in 70 A.D. The, the Romans, uh, Titus and Vespasian, uh, Titus comes in and just destroys the place, killing tens of thousands of Jews. Jesus actually warned ahead of time that this would happen. In all three synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Jesus warns ahead of time and says, let the Jewish people in the city who see the Romans coming get out of the city as quick as you can. And we're told in church history that the Christians did flee, but the non-believing Jews stayed to defend the city. And tragically, uh, were, were, were destroyed in that particularly bloody situation. Now, now try to think here. I'm not, I'm not making a political comment about today, but everyone knows that the politics of the last 10 years has been turned up, 
right? Like turn to a boiling point, like in a way that most of us, maybe none of us have seen in our lifetime, just very intense, things are very divided. Imagine that being far worse in Jerusalem in the 50s, far worse than what we're experiencing between Democrats and Republicans in our country today. In the 50s AD, what Jesus had got a glimpse of at His time had gotten heated up. It got much worse. And in the 50s AD, the Jewish people were against the Romans more than they have ever been in their lives. And it, the reason why is because people like Caesar, remember Gaius Caligula, was going to do some horrific stuff, putting up, he wanted to put up an idol of himself in Jerusalem and in, in the temple and all these different things. And the Jewish people were becoming increasingly hostile to the Roman leaders and increasingly wanting a Christ, a Messiah, to set them free from Rome which is why Jesus did not fit their paradigm, right, when Jesus came. So in the 50s, this is getting heated up. In the 60s, it gets to a fever pitch, and in 66, the Jewish revolt begins. They, they, they go up against the Romans. The Romans send in legions of troops, and there is massive death. And so the church in Jerusalem, as we know it, is obliterated around 66 to 70 AD, and things change dramatically after that. But we are living in this strange overlap between the Jewish age, as they knew it, and the, the, the Christian age, right, the church age. There's this 40-year overlap where the temple is still standing and where Jewish Christians in Jerusalem are still practicing all the ceremonial laws including purification laws that we hear about in this passage. Now, th this surprises probably a lot of us. It surprises me, honestly, to think through this. This included animal sacrifice, uh, because here the offering of purification in verse 26 is animal sacrifice. It includes killing a male lamb one-year-old, and this is all… Okay, just real quick. We're talking about Nazarite vows in this passage. If you go back to Numbers chapter 6, you can read almost the whole chapter is about th th this, and you're told at the end of a Nazarite vow, which could be a 30-day period where a man chooses or a woman chooses to not drink wine or, or touch anything from a grapevine, they would let their hair grow, right? And especially men would cut their hair at the end of those 30 days. It could be 60 days. It could be a lifetime, right? Like Samson. But they would cut their hair after 30 days, and they would put their hair with the offering, and the offering would have a wave offering and all these different things. But a year-old male lamb, a year-old female lamb, and a ram would all be killed as part of the offering. And the Jewish people did not, if they were Christians, did not believe these animal sacrifices saved them. If they believed that, they would not be Christian Jews, right? They did not believe that. But as, a, as an act of obedience to the Mosaic law, although they didn't, they didn't have to keep it, they continued to keep, almost all of them in Jerusalem, the ceremonial laws of the Old Covenant they didn't have to, but they chose to, uh, to do this in honor of their, really, of their heritage, also in honor of Moses. And so, can you imagine the tension that begins to develop between the Jews in Jerusalem and a guy like Paul? Because if you've read Galatians, Paul says, people who say you rely on the ceremonies, you rely on these things, you're anathema, you're accursed. If you rely on circumcision, if you rely on the ceremonies, you, you don't actually know the Lord. And so imagine word gets back to Jerusalem, what Paul's teaching, and it's, it's a distortion of what Paul's teaching that comes back to Jerusalem. A distortion comes back. But listen, when politics are heated up, is it easy for distortion to happen? Is it hard to hear what someone's really saying across these kinds of boundaries? Oh, absolutely there are. So what, what Paul is really saying gets skewed just enough so that he is misrepresented and caricatured, and so people are beginning to think Paul is some kind of apostate, some kind of compromiser against the Old Testament and against what uh, Christ has, has, has done. Now, just to add further evidence to this, do you remember Josephus, the non-Christian 
historian from the first century. He was born around 37 AD. He's born not long after the church was born, not long after Jesus, seven years after Jesus-ish. Josephus is born. He, during the Jewish war, he realizes he's going to lose, right? He's a Pharisee. He realizes he's going to lose. So he says, you know what? I've always loved Rome. And he switches sides. In fact, he says, you know what, emperor, I love you so much. I even have a prophecy that you're going to become the emperor one day. I really like you. And so he moves back to Rome. He writes all his Jewish histories. We still have them today. And one of the most incredible quotes in his entire works, the huge works of Josephus. One of the most amazing things, because it's written by a first century non-Christian Jew, is this simple statement that around the year 62 AD, so what, that's like five years from now? Because remember, we're in 57. So about five years from now, there's a little moment where the, the governor of the Roman governor, Festus, has died. And you know how there can be a power vacuum in a moment when you're trying to replace an old leader with a new leader who just died? In that power vacuum, Ananus, not Annas, Ananus, who's the high priest, is sick and tired of James, the brother of Jesus, who's in this passage. And according to Josephus, during this power vacuum, Ananus calls together the Sanhedrin because there's no Roman governor around for a few weeks, right? They got a little gap in time where there's no Roman official here to do anything about this because remember, they couldn't put people to death without Pilate or a governor to do something for them. But there's no Pilate, there's no Festus, there's no one there. So what do they do? They call the Sanhedrin together and they vote to have James killed by stoning and some of his, some of his friends, his colleagues. And Josephus says, I'm going to read it directly from there so I don't misquote it. Josephus says this incredible statement. Just follow me for a moment. It's worth hearing the whole quote. But this younger man, Ananus, who, as we have told you already, took the high priesthood, was a bold man in his temper and very insolent. He was also of the sect of the Sadducees. So even Josephus doesn't probably like this guy very much, being a Pharisee, who, for, who, uh, who are very rigid in judging offenders above the rest of the Jews, as we have already observed. When, therefore, Ananus was of this disposition, he was angry, short-tempered, he thought he had now a proper opportunity to exercise his power. Festus was now dead, and Albinus was uh, upon the road, the new governor. So he assembled the Sanhedrin of judges and brought before them, these are the words of Josephus, brought before them the brother of Jesus who was called Christ, whose name was James. And some others, some of his companions, and when he had formed an accusation against them as lawbreakers, he delivered them to be stoned. That's astonishing because it's a non-Christian from the time of Christ saying, James was a leader in the Jerusalem church in the year 62 AD. He'd been there for a long time. James, the brother of Jesus who was called Christ, was stoned to death by the high priest in the Sanhedrin in 62. Now, that is no doubt what happened. Do you understand the tension politically in this environment in 57 AD? James could be killed at any moment. Anyone in the Jerusalem church could be killed, and Paul seems to be in some ways dangerous, okay? Paul could make things worse when he shows up in Jerusalem. So let's begin walking through these points here. Number one, I want you to hold your spot here and turn to Galatians, to your right, to Galatians chapter 2. And this is how Paul and James agreed about the gospel. Paul and James agreed about the gospel. As you're turning there, this passage in Acts is the fourth time Paul and James have met. They meet three years after Paul's conversion in Galatians 1, verse 18 and 19. They meet once. They meet a second time in Galatians 2. They meet a third time in Acts 15 at the Jerusalem Council. Now they're meeting for the fourth time in Acts 21. So they've met at least four times. This is the second time they've met in Galatians 2. 
And I'm just going to read a little bit here, starting in verse 1, Galatians 2.1. Then after 14 years, I, Paul, went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order that I might make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers, false Christians, secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they may bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who seemed to be influential… What they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, Gentiles, just as Peter had been entrusted to the gospel with the gospel to the circumcised, Jews, for he who th- worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles… And when James, that's our same James here, James the brother of Jesus, and when James and Cephas, that's Peter and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised, only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. Now, this is a lot of confusion here. We talk about it at length. Let me just say this. Paul brings an uncircumcised Christian named Titus to the meeting. Now listen, if James and Paul don't agree on the gospel, you will see it right now. Because if you have to receive the Mosaic law and keep circumcision laws as a a Gentile to be saved, then James, Peter, and John would have forced Titus, uh, if he wanted to be saved, that he would have to undergo circumcision. And so it's a test case. Let's bring in the Gentile. Will you force him to obey the law of Moses to be saved? You know what happens? James and John and Peter say, we don't add anything to your message, Paul. It's by faith alone. Paul's been saying faith alone, verse 16 of this chapter. He says, let me just read verse 16 of chapter 2. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Now, do you see his message? We are made right with God, not by works of ceremonial law, but by faith alone in Christ. And James says, amen, and shakes Paul's hand. You get that? They didn't force Titus to receive circumcision. They agreed on the gospel. We're saved by, by grace through faith in Christ, not by obeying the laws. Okay? So, anyone who tells you Paul preaches a different gospel than James… That is not true. They shook hands in verse 9 on the gospel, and they added nothing to Paul's message. Now, let's turn back to Acts chapter 15. Acts chapter 15. If you look at verse 5 of chapter 15, it says, "...some believers who belong to the party of the Pharisees," this is in Jerusalem, rose up and said, Acts 15, verse 5, but some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. And the apostles had a, a meeting about this. If you look at verses, uh, verse 8, 
excuse me, verse uh, 7, the middle of verse, Peter stood up and said to them, brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. Look at verse 9, he made no distinction between us and them, Jews and Gentiles, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples? That's the Old Testament ceremonial law that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear, but we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. If you look at verse 13, after they finished speaking, James, same guy, replied, brothers, listen to me, Simeon, that's Peter, has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take for them from them a people for His name, as it's written in the words of the prophets, and he quotes the Old Testament to back it up. Verse 19, therefore my judgment is that we should not trouble those Gentiles who turn to God. And then he has those four restrictions there that they, they should abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual morality, from what has been strangled, and from blood. Now, do you see? James is at a meeting with Paul and Peter, and they all agree. Gentiles have to simply trust in Christ. They're saved by grace. They don't have to keep the Mosaic law to be saved. Everyone is in agreement on that. But while we're here, let me go to my next point here. Number two, James and Paul and James agreed about Gentiles. You can see James here speaking of Gentiles being added to the church in this passage, but let's go back to our main passage, chapter 21. And let's look back at verses 17 to 20. 21, verse 17. Do Paul and James really agree about the Gentiles? They don't have to keep the ceremonial law? Let's see. Verse 17, when we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and the elders were present. Now, pause there. So, is Luke present? Paul went with us to see James. So, Luke is an eyewitness to this meeting. That's amazing. So, Luke is there. Paul is there. James is there. Paul's converts from the different churches came with the money that he was bringing. They're, they're there. He's got a whole group of converts who are Gentiles and all the Jewish elders of the church in Jerusalem. This is a huge gathering. What are they going to say? Verse 19, after greeting them, he related, Paul related, one by one, the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. Now, stop there. That's basically, think the last like three months of sermons here is what Paul told them, right? We've been all of Paul's missionary journeys. Missionary journey one, two, and three, Paul is summarizing all these missionary journeys. He tells the story about, no doubt, the earthquake in Philippi. He tells the story about what happened in Thessalonica. He tells the story about Athens and the Areopagus. He tells the story about Corinth and all the immorality there. And he talks about the conversions. He talks about uh, all the different places he went. Is James going to be angry or not about what's happening? Verse 20, and when they heard it, including James, they glorified God. So, are they in agreement about this is good, that the Gentiles are trusting Christ, they're not embracing the ceremonial law, and they are fully members of God's new covenant people? Yes, they're in complete agreement on the state of the Gentiles. Let's look at uh, the Jews at the end of verse 20. James says, middle of verse 20, and they said to him, to Paul, you see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed, they are all zealous for the law. So, Paul, this may sound unusual to say out loud, but it, it absolutely is true. Paul does not think it is a sin 
for the Jews to continue with their ceremonial law as long as they're not doing it to be saved, but they're doing it simply as part of what they've done throughout their whole life. Think about this. Does a Gentile have to become a Jew to be a Christian? No. Does a Jew have to become a Gentile to become a Christian? No. No one has to change. 1 Corinthians 7, was anyone uh, in a state of circumcision? Don't seek to be uncircumcised. Was anyone in a state of uncircumcision? Don't seek to be circumcised. He says, listen, whatever state you're in is fine. You don't have to switch. And so Paul is okay with this. So they're in agreement about the Jews. But let's get to number four. They are in agreement about Paul's enemies. Look with me at verses 21 and 22. Paul's enemies have been misrepresenting Paul. Verse 21. So, there's many of the Jews who've believed. They're zealous for the law. Verse 21, they have been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or to walk according to our customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. Now, is the statement in 21 true? Had Paul really said, Jews must forsake all ceremonial law. They are, should not, it's a sin to circumcise their children, and they should not obey the Jewish customs. No. Now, can you see how someone would read a book like Galatians and accidentally and wrongly think Paul was saying that? Yes, but if you read Galatians carefully, Paul's writing in the heat of an argument. If you read Galatians carefully, he says, circumcision does not matter, nor uncircumcision. The only thing that counts is a new creation. It's the last paragraph of Galatians. So he says, listen, if you're circumcised or not is irrelevant unless you are doing it to be saved, in which case you're misusing uh, circumcision. So Paul has been misrepresented, and both James and Paul believe that Paul's message has been distorted. But in a politically heated environment, what do you do? Because when Paul shows up, they're like, all right, that's the guy, get him. He's trying to destroy everything we stand for. And there was a chance of violence, which, by the way, will happen from unbelieving Jews later in the chapter. So what will they do? Well, number five, point number five, they agree on what Paul should do. Look at verses 23 and 24. James says to Paul, do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men, this is no doubt the Nazarite vow, take these men and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. Thus all will know that there is nothing in what they have been told about you, but that you yourself live in observance of the law. Look at verse 26. Then Paul took the men, and the next day he purified himself along with them and went into the temple, giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled and the offering, a lot of translations say the sacrifice, which is the same thing, the sacrifice, the offering, was presented for each one of them. That would be the one-year-old male goat, one, uh, sheep, one-year-old female sheep, and the goat. Now, stop for a second. 1 Corinthians 9. Has it come to your mind around verse 20 when Paul says, I'm free, but I don't use my freedom to show off my freedom? Well, I think it was F.F. F. Bruce said, some people think that they're free, but they're enslaved to their freedom. They're enslaved to their emancipation, and they flaunt their freedom. They don't love people with their freedom. They flaunt it. Paul says, don't use your freedom as a cover-up for the indulgence of the flesh, but use your freedom to serve one another. I'm free to serve, not free to flaunt what I can do. And so, Paul here, he has the freedom to not be ceremonially pure. 
He has the freedom to say, I don't care about the ceremonial law. What good is that for me? I don't need to be ceremonially. I'm pure in Christ. I don't need to kill an animal. I don't need to be here. He could have flaunted his freedom, but would that have helped the unity of the church at this moment? No. And so Paul, in 1 Corinthians 9 ways, says, to the Jews, I became a Jew. Although I myself don't live under the law, I become as one under the law. Why? To win those who are under the law. To those who are outside the law, I become as one outside the ceremonial law. Not myself outside the law of Christ, always under the law of God. But he says, to the weak I become weak. I become all things to all men that by all means I might save some. I do it all, he says, for the sake of the gospel that I might share with them in its benefits. And so Paul says, listen, think, think about this. If the church in Jerusalem is made up of almost only Jewish Christians and they want to reach their city, if they abandon the ceremonial law, do you think the people around them will listen to them? Let me say that again. Everyone in the Jerusalem church is a Jewish Christian, and almost everyone living in Jerusalem is a Jew. Everyone in the city keeps the ceremonial laws, Christian or non-Christian. If the Christians all flat flaunted their freedom and said, we don't have to do this anymore. We can break Sabbath. We can, we can do this and that. We can eat non-kosher food. Man, this bacon. If y'all had bacon, it's fantastic. It goes with eggs. It's incredible. It, they could do that all day long if they wanted to. But if the church would have done that in the city of Jerusalem, when they're reaching almost only non-Christian Jews, it would have been a huge stumbling block to them. They would have said, you guys don't really care, and they would have turned them off. And so for evangelistic purposes, among other purposes, it seems that the Jerusalem church was largely keeping to the ceremonial law because they didn't want to offend their neighbor. And just like Paul says, when I'm in a synagogue, I eat kosher. If Paul would have been living in Jerusalem, I have no doubt he would have kept kosher too because he's trying to win the Jews who are not believers. And so if you have a whole church of Jews in a city of Jews, then it makes sense that the Christian Jews would keep kosher food laws. They would continue circumcising their children. They would keep Sabbath. They would keep the, the, the feasts. They would do all that not to be saved, but to keep a stumbling block away from their Jewish unbelieving friends. Does that make sense? And so Paul's there and Paul says, okay, uh, when in Jerusalem, be like the Jews. So I said, I, okay, I, I am happy to do this. And so Paul participates in, a Nazarite, in the Nazarite vow. Now, real quick, just to give you the details, it seems commentators debate this. I'm going to give you what I think is the best option. You don't want me to walk through with the four options because I would fall asleep, okay? But let me give you the one I think is correct. This is what I think is happening. These four men are under a Nazarite vow. They're probably waiting for the 30 days to be done so they can cut their hair, offer those sacrifices, right? Paul shows up. I'm sure James knew he was coming. They got this thing ready to go. Like, okay, we got these four guys ready for you, Paul. The objection is Paul tells us to spit on the ceremonial law. That's what Paul's been telling everybody, spit on it. And Paul, they go, listen, Paul, if you will offer lots of money and pay for 12 animals, right, three for each person, four people, right, the two, lam the two lambs, they go, you got to do 12, that's expensive. If Paul will personally pay for all those animals for the sacrifice for these Jewish Christians, and then he himself is probably doing a different purification. Paul is probably not doing a Nazarite vow, which doesn't quite work in this passage. He's probably dealing with this idea that when a Jew goes away from Jerusalem for a long time, when they come back from Gentile lands, they are ritually impure, and they have to do certain things to get themselves pure again so they can go into the temple to worship. Now, Paul is not bound by these things anymore. He's free in Christ. But because he loves his Jewish believing brothers and sisters, and he loves the unbelieving Jewish and brothers and sisters, he submits himself to a law he does not have to keep out of love for both the unity of the church and the mission of the church in that city. And Paul pays a ton of money, and he does a lot of things to try to make himself uh, 
pure ritually through this offering so that he can go in to this church and to love others well. Now, we will see that things don't go as they would have wished next Sunday. Paul's going to get into a riot. Unbelieving Jews are going to accuse him. Things are going to go badly in many ways, although God is still in control of all of this. But let me, let me just mention a couple things quickly. Turn, you can leave this passage and turn, back, turn to 1 Corinthians 9, where I was quoting. 1 Corinthians chapter 9. And I want to draw out a few points of application. So we're going, to, we're going to leave 57 A.D. We're going to head here to Reformation Day 2021. Okay, that's where we are now. And I want to make a few points of application. Let me reread part that I quoted here. Look at verse 19 of 1 Corinthians 9. It's worth hearing these verses another time. You know what? I want to start earlier. I do this all the time. Let me start in verse 12 and, and follow, follow this. If others share this rightful claim on you, do not we even more? Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put, a, put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Now, just stop there. In your life, are there areas where you are using your legitimate freedom in Christ in a way that you know in your conscience is not loving to people around you? I don't even have a specific thing in mind right now. I'm just talking, you know yourself, you know your situation. Are, are there areas where you are flaunting your freedom in Christ? You say, I have the right to do this. I don't care what other people think. I don't care what it does for other. I don't care if it tempts other people to sin. I don't care what's going on. I'm going to do this my way. Are there areas where we feel like, okay, I think I am misusing legitimate freedom as a cover-up for the flesh. Let's look at verse 19. For though I am free from all... I have made myself a servant of all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those who are under the law. To those outside the law I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I might share with them in its blessings. Let's think here in your own life, what are areas and ways in which we could apply this principle in our own life? Now, I want to shift just slightly and, and just mention four things briefly on another point of application, a little bit to the side of that last one. Okay, if you've been here the last couple weeks, here's what you'll, something you'll notice. And there was one pastor pointed this out in his sermon, and I was like, I didn't, I didn't see that. It was very helpful for me. I want to mention this in closing. We won't turn back to it, but in Acts 21, at the beginning of the chapter, Paul's on his way to Jerusalem. Every single time he stops at a city, everybody there says, Paul, don't go. Remember? He gets to the city of Tyre for seven days. The Christians say, Paul, they're going to kill you. Don't go. He gets down to the next city. He goes to the, gets to Caesarea. Paul, I'm telling you, don't go. It's not worth it. And Paul keeps saying, no, I've got to go. I've got to go for the sake of the church, for God's glory. I've got to go. I don't care if I die. My life is pointless to me if I, if I can just finish the purpose of God in my life. And so I'm going to testify to the gospel. If it kills me or not, I've got to go. And finally, everyone agrees for Paul to go. So get this. In that part, Paul was going against his counselors and against the crowd. 
right? He disagreed with what even Luke was saying. Luke said, we pleaded with him not to go. And then finally we said, okay, we'll go. In this passage today, James and the elders come together and say, hey, Paul, we're a group. We got an idea for you. Here's our counsel. And Paul says, I'll do it. They see it's the opposite, right? First half of the chapter, Paul is going against the majority opinion of his Christian friends. In the second part, he goes with the majority opinion of his Christian friends. And so what, what are we to make? I do think that those are meant to be put side by side. It's fascinating to me. He goes against the majority and with the majority. Now listen, we all have different personalities. I am so thankful that the body of Christ is, is diverse in all the different giftings that we have, all the different ways we think and the talents that we have. I thank God for that. If everybody was an I, what did Jerry say? We'd see pretty well. <laughs> but that'd be about it. If we were only an ear, we'd have great hearing. We wouldn't be able to see. So we're thankful for the diversity of gifts in the body of Christ. Now, but listen, with gifts come talents and temptations unique to that gift. Maybe you have, by nature, a contrarian personality. I'll admit, I probably have a little bit of this, okay? I don't really love the majority. I kind of like, if I could go against, there's a part of me that kind of enjoys going against the crowd, okay? There's a part of me that kind of likes it, which can be good or bad, right, depending on the situation. So someone's bent, you may be like me, you might be more in the bent to not, if it's really popular, you're like turned off by it. I don't know, it's just me. Like once it becomes, a, there's a certain level of something gets popular and I kind of lose interest in it. I don't know what it is. So there's a contrarian thing. Some of you probably have this just like I do if I'm the only one, then that is the blessing I give to the church <laughs> if I'm the only one. But I'm sure there's more. So if you have that, your instinct is always to go against majority opinion. I'm going to prove them. I'm going to show them. I'm going to tell them. I'm going to show what's what. I'm going to prove that I know and they don't. I'm, I got this figured out and they got it all wrong. And, and that could become a very fleshly thing, right? So we got to get control over that. On the other side, some of us are hardwired towards agreement and appeasement and, and maybe you could call it people pleasing or whatever it is. We, we want people to agree with us. We want to agree with them. We want, we're always bending towards agreeing, agreeing, agreeing. Now, that can be good or bad, right? Just like the other one. So what we really need to be depends on the moment and what's happening, right? And what we learn in this particular passage is when the advance of the gospel is at stake, that's what makes Paul decide yes. So, in other words, they say don't go to Jerusalem. Paul says, I'm going not because I'm contrarian. I'm going because I want to preach the gospel in Jerusalem to my beloved Jewish friends, my kinsmen. Remember Romans 9? I would trade my salvation for the Jewish people if I could. Remember Romans 9? I bear witness, my conscience bear witness in the Holy Spirit. I'm not lying. I would be accursed and cut off from Christ if I could for the sake of my kinsmen according to the flesh. My earnest prayer to God is that they might be saved, Romans 10.1. So Paul loves them. He says, listen, if I die preaching the gospel in Jerusalem, it will be for a gospel purpose, for the advance of Christ's name, and it will make my death worth it. So you see, his calculus is gospel advance, right? On the other side, he gets to Jerusalem, James goes, your reputation, frankly, is not good. And if they find out you're here, they consider you an apostate, that you're catechizing people to reject Moses, and that it's a sin for Jews to obey the Jewish law. And Paul's like, I'm, I don't teach that. Yes, but they've, they've heard about Galatians. He's like, oh, yeah, yeah, I could see how you could misinterpret that letter. Okay, so I, I'm, I'm, I'm making up some stuff here. Okay, so maybe that's what they said. And then, so what does Paul do? James says, you need to help these guys complete a Nazarite vow, pay for the animals to be sacrificed, which is 12, which will cost you a lot of money, proving you're serious, and then you need to complete your purification so you can go into the temple pure. That proves to people you're not against obeying the law. It's not wrong for a Jew to keep the ceremony. It's not a sin if they're doing it for the right reason. And what does Paul say? That's going to advance the gospel, isn't it? 
I'll do it. I don't care how much it costs. I don't care what it costs me personally. And by the way, it's about to cost him almost his life because while he's trying to do this, he almost gets killed by a mob. So Paul, I, I don't care. I will risk my life. I'll be inconvenienced. I'll pay a lot of money. But for the advance of the gospel, it will be worth it. So count, counselors are good, and we should have counselors, but they are also fallible, right? We need counselors, but they can, they can be fallible. They are fallible. Genuine Christians who are wise and godly can reach different conclusions on disputed matters, right? You've got things that are always right in the Bible, things that are always wrong, but do you know about that third category? Things that are indifferent. What color shirt you wear is not a command of the Bible. It's indifferent. You can make your own decision. And with matters of indifference, we always choose what advances the gospel. We always do what's right. We never do what's wrong. And on matters that are indifferent, we choose what serves the advance of the gospel. And Paul says, I'm going to do that. And also, um, when the gospel is primary, it helps us better, I think, make decisions for our life. So I'm going to give you a brief second here. I, I'm done with the sermon. I'm going to give you a brief minute uh, in your own heart of hearts to have the Lord search your heart, see if there's any area where you think you need to repent or change in any area of how you are living your life, especially in regards to the advance of the gospel, and pray quietly in your heart, and then I will close us in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you that these leaders of the church agreed that we are saved by grace through faith alone in Christ, that we are not saved by any of our deeds, works, or effort, that we're saved by the works of Jesus, living a perfect life, dying a substitutionary death on the cross, being buried because He was truly dead, rising because He was truly raised to life, appearing to many, ascending to heaven, and will one day come to judge the living and the dead. Thank you that because of His work, we can have access to a holy God. We can be clothed in the righteousness of Christ. We can celebrate what this day, this Reformation Day, is meant to celebrate, which is you alone get the glory for our salvation. And God, I pray that as we try to reach out to others, that you would give us wisdom and give us wise counselors, wise guides, wise believers who can speak into our life on difficult decisions, whether it's what job we're going to take, which is oftentimes morally neutral. Or, or where we'll go to college or graduate school or where we'll work next or who we'll marry and all these different things. There's moral implications to all these, but sometimes there's neutral issues. And God, I pray when it comes to those that are less clear that you would help us to make decisions that most advance your glory and the gospel in this world. Help us to be willing to pay sacrificial costs like Paul paying for those animals in an effort to take away stumbling blocks to the gospel, that we would better reach those who do not yet know you and give us a humility and a wisdom to know when to do what, and also a humility to admit when we have failed. And please forgive us when we do, and I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.